it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 14th of March, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18th, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged as one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, or just passing through while we welcome you with open arms, you know what? You're part of our history, and so I congratulate you. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Zone Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, we've got a great show for you, so without further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, my friends, I've returned from my travels to my other home in Honolulu, Hawaii. Well, my goodness, I'm looking outside my window. (laughs) What am I seeing? I'm seeing snowfall and wind blows and everything else. Uh, So I have to tell you, it's good to be back on this late winter day here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, on Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to the Jeremiah Milbank Estate in central Greenwich, as well as the Towers on Byram Shore. It's Women's History Month, and our celebration continues. On today's show, we'll turn our attention to the life and legacy of Elizabeth Milbank Anderson, an heiress, philanthropist, advocate, and supporter of a wide range of public health and social reform initiatives, including the establishment of one of the first foundations underwritten by a woman in America. On Greenwich from Home, we'll shine the spotlight on Sylvia Wilkes, the reclusive Greenwich heiress who was the daughter of tycoon Hetty Green, also known as, quote, the Witch of Wall Street, unquote, the richest woman in America during the Gilded Age. On Greenwich Life As It Is and Was, columnist Lucian B. Edwards published a piece in 1924 focused on the opening of various streets in what is today central Greenwich. No city of Greenwich was asserted in March 1924 in opposition to the incorporation of the town of Greenwich into a city form of government. Why? Well, I'll share some details. As we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the establishment of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, and crimes committed and recorded throughout Greenwich's history on crimes and misdemeanors. Back in 1879, an anonymous Greenwich resident composed a patriotic poem in observance of the famous ride by General Israel Putnam during the the American Revolutionary War conflict, in which he narrowly escaped capture by invading British forces. There's lots to see, lots to do, and lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. I'll share news of gatherings and events, including the upcoming St. Patrick's Day Parade, a lecture on the indigenous roots of lacrosse. Sports more than just a game is the new exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society. It just opened. And I'll have a whole lot more. My friends, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages.
Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, my friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age, when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich 
first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest state Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed history about the emergence of the greatest states during the Gilded Age. It's a book that I strongly recommend. On today's show, we're going to feature Millbank and the Towers. Now, the principal owner of Millbank was Jeremiah Millbank. The architect was Lamon Rich, and the construction date was circa 1886. Now, the Towers, its principal owner was Joseph Millbank. The architect was Howard N. Caldwell. Its construction date was circa 1901. On the corner of Putnam and Millbank Avenues stands an elaborate iron gate with massive pillars and archways incongruously set into a low blue stone wall. Though it now encloses only a contemporary apartment building, it once marked the entrance to the largest estate in central Greenwich. This was Millbank with land stretching from the post road to an inlet of the Sound and from what is now Millbank Avenue to Indian Field Road, encompassing over 300 acres. The founder of the Millbank family in Greenwich, Jeremiah, who lived from 1818 to 1884, began his business career as a wholesale grocer in New York in the late 1830s. A fortuitous meeting with Gail Borden in 1857 introduced him to the possibility of preserving milk by canning, and he financed the operation that was later to become the Borden Condensed Milk Company. Supplying this product to the Union Army during the Civil War brought instant wealth to both partners, and in 1863, Millbank further invested in the newly founded Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad. Soon, his business life was so active that he turned the wholesale grocery business over to his son Joseph and devoted all his time to investment banking. In the manner of other wealthy New Yorkers, Milbank decided to establish a suitable country house that his wife, the former Elizabeth Lake, who lived from 1827 to 1891, was from Greenwich, surely influenced his choice of location. He purchased land opposite the Second Congregational Church, high above central Greenwich. It had been farmed until 1865, when New York politician William Boss Tweed bought 80 acres from Philander Button, the principal of Greenwich Academy, to build Linwood, his summer home. After Tweed's death in 1878, his widow sold the property to Jeremiah Milbank, who lived in it for a time, but the Republican was not interested in Tweed's house and had other plans for the site. He sold it to H.O. Havemeyer, who moved it several hundred feet to a lot on the Post Road. Local historian William Finch recalls that the Victorian house remained there, on property now owned by Temple Shalom, until it was raised in the 1930s. The only construction which survived from the Tweed era was part of the fine, low bluestone wall which encircled the property. But even this wall would be interrupted by the grandiose gateway surrounding, surmounted with the Melbank M, which Jeremiah Milbank had erected. In the early 1880s, Milbank engaged the fashionable New York architectural firm of Lamb & Rich to design his house. 
The partnership of Hugo Lamb and Charles Alonzo Rich later gained prominence for such projects as the Berkeley Preparatory School, now the Mechanics Institute, on West 44th Street in Manhattan. In the 1880s, the two architects were becoming known mostly for their country house commissions, and Jeremiah Milbank need have looked no farther than Henry Malloroy's house on Byram Shore for reference to their work. Rich is generally credited with the Milbank design. It can never be known how much of such a house is architect's creation and how much is projection of a client's ego. But the result of the Milbank project was a suitable monument to the founder of a great American fortune. From the Putnam Avenue gate, visitors traveled by road shaded by elm and evergreens. At the end of the drive, in a broad clearing with manicured lawns, was a red-roofed mansion. Fortress-like, it stood near the brow of Putnam Hill, overlooking woods and the sound beyond. The heavily rusticated stone building was Romanesque-inspired, with its suggestion of rounded towers. A broad-roofed piazza swept across the front of the house and sheltered the main entrance. From here one stepped into a wainscoted reception hall of baronial proportions, with panels elaborately carved in Renaissance motifs. Directly ahead was a handsome oak stairway leading to the second floor. A generous fireplace was decorated with Della Robia-style cherubs, carved in stone, who appeared to be warming their hands at the hearth. The most ornate room was the parlor with its rounded bays. In this large salon, 24 by 44 feet, walls lacquered deep red were hung with tapestries, and the exotic ceiling was coffered in bamboo. Across the hall, the library appropriately featured built-in bookshelves and has been described as having been, quote, quietly finished, unquote, in comparison with more elaborate rooms. The lavish use of paneling in the hall extended into the dining room, where walls and ceilings were covered with carved mahogany. The sense of being in a historic building, which visitors must have felt, bellied the true character of the house, a comfortable and surprisingly modern dwelling for the 1880s. Many of the finest conveniences which money and engineering could provide were present. Central heating, a laundry room in the basement, and an Otis elevator which ran from basement to attic. The private second floor housed six large bedrooms and a family sitting room. The five bathrooms could have been comfortable in any era with their silver-plated fixtures and walls adorned with six-inch hand-painted tiles imported from China. On the third floor were a ballroom, a billiard room, and a playroom along with smaller family bedrooms and servants' rooms. While the later garage chauffeur's quarters echoed the architecture of the main house, other outbuildings scattered throughout the property were designed in a more pastoral fashion. Dairyman's Cottage, Carpenter's Cottage, a superintendent's house, were all white frame cottages built in the Carpenter Gothic style with mansard roofs and quote-unquote gingerbread trim. Although Jeremiah Milbank died before his house was completed, his descendants would use it until the 1950s. 
His wife saw the estate completed as planned, and as a memorial to her husband, she donated the clock for the steeple of the Congregational Church directly opposite the entrance to Millbank. From Jeremiah's wife, the house and land passed to their son, Joseph, who lived from 1848 to 1914, who deeded the holding to his sister, Elizabeth, in 1897, when he built his own summer estate in East Portchester. Born in 1850, Elizabeth Milbank was the wife of Colonel A. A. Anderson, a noted portraitist whose studio was in New York. She was known as a generous woman whose beneficiaries included Bernard College and who founded, with her brother, the Milbank Memorial Fund devoted to charity. Elizabeth Anderson is remembered locally for many philanthropies. She donated the library to Greenwich and funded the town's first incinerator. Milbank was often the scene of gala charitable benefits, but given that she was a staunch temperance supporter, it is certain that no liquor was served at these affairs. Over time, Elizabeth Anderson acquired additional property until the parcel totaled 350 acres. This, combined with other real estate she owned, made her the largest landowner in the town of Greenwich by 1900. She continued developing house and grounds in the manner of her, her father had imagined. Under the direction of Thomas Pytel, the estate gardener for over 30 years, the grounds were planted with numerous specimen shrubs and shade trees, many of them rare and brought from distant places. In 1903, the town's first tree-spraying machine to control pests was developed at Millbank to protect the valuable plantings. Some of the statuary decorating the gardens were remainders of Tweed's ownership. Local legend has it that these pieces, like the building material for the estate wall, were intended for New York City parks, but conveniently found their way to Greenwich as free adornment for Boss Tweed's property. Hmm. A tennis court was added as well as a small playground, complete with kitchenette and lavatory. A large greenhouse supplied off-season vegetables together with green plants for indoors. The lower part of the property was farmland, including fields, stables, and poultry buildings requiring at least 20 farm workers. The easternmost portion along Indian Field Road was left in its rustic state, with rocky forest and streams. The only dwelling in this area was a gatehouse known as The Lodge, located in the southeastern corner of the property where the woods opened into orchards and meadows. It was reminiscent of an English shepherd's cottage with a roof of thatch. This Adirondack-style portion of the property was the first to be subtracted from the building, from the holding, rather. Elizabeth Anderson deeded the wild 273 acres to her cousin, Albert Milbank, in 1920, who in turn, in turn sold them to a developer, Arthur H. Waterman, of Brooklyn and Rye. Now known as Millbrook, this was one of the country's first planned real estate subdivisions, a self-contained neighborhood with private club and golf course, designed to preserve much of the bosky setting. Only in the spelling of the subdivision's name, a play on the Millbank name, is any memory preserved of the family who once owned it. The Anderson's daughter, Eleanor, was married briefly to John Stuart Tanner and later to Frederick B. Campbell. She became a physician and maintained a great interest in the field of public health. From her first marriage, she had one daughter, Elizabeth. After the divorce, this child was adopted by her grandmother as Elizabeth Millbank Anderson II. 
She spent much of her childhood at Millbank and attended Greenwich schools in the early grades before continuing her education in New York. It was she who inherited her grandmother's estate, and as a young woman, came back to Millbank in summers with her husband, H. A. Adams Ashforth, and children. Though Elizabeth Anderson Ashforth died very young in 1930, her husband and family continued to use the house, eventually making it, making it their year-round residence. Her son, Henry A. Ashforth, Jr., recalls it as a wonderful house in which to grow up, with views to the sound from the upper windows and a spacious playroom for cold and rainy days. The gardens and farm provided plenty of entertainment for the children, and the remaining woods below the cliff still gave the house site a feeling of nearby wilderness. But in 1940, the acreage was further reduced when the town of Greenwich condemned 16 acres of farmland to build the much-needed Julian Curtis School. Even without the farm, at least a dozen men were needed to maintain the grounds, and during the war years, this kind of staffing was all but impossible. By the 1950s, problems that afflicted many other large property owners, the lack of household staff, and the expense of heating such a cavernous space, were felt at Millbank too. Weary of the burden, H. Adams Ashforth decided to sell, but on the contemporary real estate market, the fine old house was a white elephant, more valuable for its property than as a residence. The house and land were purchased by developers, Chutik and Sudikoff of Forest Hills, New York, who would build apartments on the site. Much of the sculpture and the furnishings were sold at auction. Bathroom fixtures and imported tiles, Renaissance-style paneling and mantles, appointments with which Jeremiah Bank had chosen for their look of permanence, were sold from the house before it was finally pulled down. Little physical evidence of the estate remains to tell about it. The lodge is now a residence close on Indian Field Road, its thatch roof replaced by terracotta. The Brick Gardener's Cottage has been incorporated into the Putnam Hill development, and nearby is the statue of Bacchus, which once graced Millbank's lawn. Some evidence of the 1920s landscaping may be found in the towering trees, beech, elm, and sycamore, that have survived here and there in the real estate developments. And Jeremiah Millbank's grandiose gate still stands on the avenue, oblivious to the passage of time. While Elizabeth Milbank Anderson maintained an estate on Putnam Avenue, her brother Joseph Milbank, who lived from 1848 to 1914, was building a very different sort of estate on Byram Shore. At the end of the 19th century, the waterfront community now called Byram Shore was an isolated rural area then known as East Portchester. Most of the land there had belonged to the Mead family for many generations, but as manufacturing developed along the Byron River and the little towns of Portchester and East Portchester grew, a few people recognized that this land would one day become desirable real estate. One of the individuals was William Tinge, owner of the Hawthorne Woolen Mills on the Byron River in Glenville. Along his real estate investments was a 35-acre tract along the water. This would eventually be the waterside acreage of three of the most prominent estates of the Byram Gold Coast, Marston, Millbank, and Hirschhorn. 
The development of Byram Shore as a summer watering place for wealthy and prominent New Yorkers proved to be beneficial to the town of Port Chester. Although the estate owners were only part-time residents, they developed a strong sense of community and contributed backing for such civic projects as the founding of United Hospital in Portchester. But this was many years in the future in 1886 when Tingay sold 11 of his acres to Matilda Starbuck. If she built a house on the land, no record of it remains, and in 1898 the tract was purchased by Joseph Milbank. Three years later, construction was begun on his summer home. For the design work, he called upon the architectural firm of Howland and Caldwell. John Galen Howard had apprenticed for the architectural firms of Henry Hobson Richardson and McKim Mead and White. He eventually moved to California, where he became director of the School of Architecture at the University of California. While still in New York, Howard was associated for a time with Samuel Milbank Caldwell, a Princeton graduate and cousin of Joseph Milbank. The two had been practicing together for only a few years when Milbank engaged them, but they had already enjoyed acclaim for their designs for the Hotel Renaissance and the Hotel Essex in New York, as well as for several distinguished residences. The summer estate they planned for Joseph Milbank was known as the Towers. It was an enclave of house and dependencies unified by a theme of neo-Renaissance architecture. The common element was provided by broad-eaved terracotta roofs, which first greeted the visitor at the entrance gate and reappeared in various sizes and shapes on all of the estate's buildings. The structures were arranged on a 12-acre site, giving the effect of a self-contained village nestled around the most important element, the Grand Manor House. This imposing structure commanded the landscape from its waterfront site, and its bright red-tiled roof was visible at great distance across the sound. It was a stucco-on-frame residence, its walls punctuated by windows with classical pediments. The house's dominant feature was a four-and-a-half-story tower wing. At ground floor level, a porte couture extended over the driveway, sheltering the main entrance. Three floors above was balustraded loggia offering spectacular views in every direction. This porch was crowned with an exaggerated version of the peak red roof and broad eaves. The main floor held a large living room, a dining room, a card room, and a paneled library, as well as a pantry, and a kitchen. On the second and third floors were nine bedrooms, each with bathroom, and the servant's wing held an additional eight maids' bedrooms. Presumably, while the Millbanks were living at the towers, the latter bedrooms were always in use since the household staff of eight or nine were required to maintain the residence. The house was planned to benefit from its waterside location. Besides the tower loggia, where there were three wide verandas, two of them screened, for warm, warm weather sitting, and many of the rooms on the water side of the house had generous windows so that one could enjoy the views of gardens with the sound beyond. On the south side of the house, an old-fashioned formal garden, always planted in colors of blue and white, bloomed each summer below a large open porch. Just beyond was a traditional rose garden. Outdoor amusements were easily found for the family and their guests. There was lawn bowling on, the, on a green near the beach. 
and the estate had a tennis court until 1962 when it was replaced with a swimming pool. A squash court was housed in its own building. The gatehouse, a stucco dwelling, contains many design elements of the main house. Hipped dormer, second-floor porch, stucco chimney, and has its own two-story version of the Grand Tower. The carriage house, containing stalls and tack room, and later the garage, also carried the distinctive roof line. Even the tiny guest house interpreted the design theme on a small scale. This cottage, tucked away on the edge of the property, housed visitors in the summer and was used by the Millbank family on occasional winter weekends at the shore. The only unrelated structure was a large glass-and-steel greenhouse, whose Art Nouveau design was more sympathetic with the building's function. Here seedlings were started for the many gardens at the towers, including vegetable gardens with covered, which covered an entire acre, and cutting gardens which provided flowers for the house. Though architecturally interesting, the Towers is best remembered locally as home to several generations of the prominent Milbank family. The builder of the Shore estate, Joseph Milbank, had worked closely with his father, the first Jeremiah Milbank, in grocery, railroad, and banking businesses. With his sister, Elizabeth Anderson of Milbank, he founded the Milbank Memorial Fund in memory of their parents. After the death of Joseph Milbank in 1914, the Byram Shore estate passed to his son, Jeremiah, who lived from 1887 to 1972. It was during Jeremiah Milbank's ownership of the estate that he had the yacht Gem constructed. This was a fast 70-foot vessel, foot vessel powered with two Rolls-Royce engines in which he used to travel between the summer house and New York. Named with Jeremiah Milbank's initials, it was a familiar site anchored in the protected waters between Shell Island and the tower's private beach. A larger yacht, Santimer, was a cruiser used for family pleasure trips. Just as the family passed from father to son, so did the tradition of philanthropy. Jeremiah Milbank founded and supported the Institute for the Crippled and Disabled, the first rehabilitation center in the United States, and, with his brother Dunleavy, who lived from 1878 to 1959, he was keenly interested in funding medical research. Like his father and grandfather before him, he was a staunch and active member of the Republican Party, and his friend, President Herbert Hoover, was a frequent guest at the Shore Estate as well as on the Milbank Yacht. The death of Jeremiah Milbank in 1972 was also the end of the Towers, as a family seat where generations of Milbanks had gathered on vacations and holidays, and which, in recent years, had been a year-round residence. Of the three neighboring estate houses built on William Tingay's 35-acre parcel, the Towers had stood the longest, outlasting both the Marston and Hirshhorn residences. The era of enormous houses with loyal staffs was over, and the estate became another victim of the changing times. The great house was torn down and other homes were built on the site. Some of the dependencies survive as residences, and here and there between the trees, one still has glimpses of the distinctive red roofs that signified the towers. 
The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library System. You can go to your favorite or your nearest branch of the Greenwich Library, or you can go online and visit GreenwichHistory.org. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, my recommendation would be to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at GreenwichHistory.org, or you can call 203-869-6899, or you could also contact your favorite book vendor. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Well, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society have some great news. A new exhibit is on its way, and it's one that you really need to come and see. Sports More Than Just a Game will open on March 8th, 2023, and it will close on September 3rd, 2023. It's a dynamic exhibition of the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich, Connecticut, and its surrounding communities 
broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Again, this is sports more than just a game. It's the next terrific exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and you've really got to come and see it. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203 869 6899. Well, my friends, this is Women's History Month, and I think that you will agree with me that one of the greatest philanthropists in Greenwich history was a woman, and her name, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson. She was quite a luminary back in the early 20th century, and I would like to read to you or share with you. Um, news of her passing, which was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on February 25th, 1921. It made front page news and, um, and well worth sharing with you. The headline reads, Mrs. Anderson passes away, well-known Greenwich woman philanthropist dies in New York. And the article goes as follows. Mrs. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson of Greenwich died at the Alice Leroy Sanitarium, 18 West 51st Street in New York, on Monday night of pneumonia in her 71st year. Mrs. Anderson was born in New York City, December 20, 1850, daughter of the late Jeremiah and Elizabeth Lake Milbank. Jeremiah Milbank, up to the time of his death in 1884, was a prominent figure in the commercial and financial life of New York. He maintained a banking office on Wall Street, was one of the most active and prominent directors of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, and, with Gail Borden, founded the Borden Company, one of the largest manufacturers and distributors of milk and milk products in the world. Mrs. Anderson leaves a husband, A.A. Anderson, the artist whose studio is at 80 West 40th Street, a daughter, Dr. Eleanor M. Campbell, and a granddaughter who lives with her mother at 26 East 58th Street. All of her life, a resident of New York City, Mrs. Anderson's name is known throughout the country and among the sick and needy as of many other countries. As a generous and great-hearted woman, filled with human sympathy and eager to relieve suffering and distress among all sorts of conditions of men. She studiously avoided publicity, and many of her generous acts will never be known, but her larger gifts during the past 10 or 15 years exceeded $10 million. That's, by the way, in 1921 dollars. I don't know what that would be worth today. Anyway, back to the article. While perhaps her chief benefactions were in the interests of women and children, her generous impulses knew no bounds, and her gifts, often unsolicited and unexpected, cover a wide and diversified range. To Barnard College, of which she is a trustee and vice chairman of the board, Mrs. Anderson gave in 1896 the administration building on 119th Street, known as Millbank Hall, and which, together with the buildings flanking it, Fisk Hall and Brinkerhoff Hall, formed the original group in which the college was housed, from the time when the college left the old site on Madison Avenue and 49th Street. 
to join Columbia University on Morningside Heights. A little later in 1903, Mrs. Anderson, realizing that the future of Barnard depended upon the control of sufficient property to permit an expansion, purchased of the New York Hospital at a cost of a million dollars, the three city blocks bounded by 116th and 119th Streets, and by Broadway and Claremont Avenue, and gave this important site, now vastly more valuable than when it was purchased, to Barnard College. Since then, on this property, which is known as Millbank Quadrangle, there has been constructed Brooks Hall, a college dormitory, and Students Hall, a gift of the late Jacob H. Schiff. In 1909, Mrs. Anderson gave to the Children's Aid Society the land and buildings known as the Home for Convalescent Children at Chappaqua, New York, to which are sent each year large numbers of children from the poorer sections of the city who are either suffering from some obstinate ailment requiring prolonged treatment or who are afflicted with the after-effects of some serious illness. At Chappaqua, with its beautiful buildings, cheery rooms, and spacious grounds, thousands of waifs from the city's tenements have found health and happiness. From time to time, Mrs. Anderson has made additional gifts to the society for maintenance and as endowment, f- and as endowment for the home, so that the total now aggregates about a million dollars. For the past 15 years, she has been vitally interested in public health work and in promoting constructive measures with a view of minimizing poverty by trying to remove some of its causes. Convinced that sickness is one of the chief reasons for poverty, she gave of her strength and her money to promote the health of the community. One of her first gifts of this kind was made to the New York Association for Improving the Condition of the Poor, familiar to the people of New York as the AICP, in the form of the Millbank Public Bath Building on East 38th Street, which was so perfect in its design and in its operation that it served as a model for the series of municipal public baths subsequently constructed and maintained by the city. A few years later, she became deeply concerned to learn that, for lack of funds, the organization which had been serving nourishing luncheons at a penny a portion in a few of the public schools was about to abandon this work. Being satisfied that this service should be continued in the interests of the health of the children, she undertook to finance it herself, choosing the AICP as her medium. This resulted not only in serving the school lunches in the six or eight original schools, but the service was extended to over 30 schools, at which approximately 2 million lunches a year were served. Recently, school lunches have been taken over by the city, under the management of the Board of Education, thereby making this feature a part of the public school system. Simultaneously with the school lunch project, Mrs. Anderson made it possible for the AICP to create what is known as its Social Welfare Department, which continues itself to construction and preventive measures in contrast to the work of relieving distress among the poor. Through Mrs. Anderson's generous and clear vision, this social welfare work now includes community health centers, dental clinics for children, and the Victoria Apartments, which is a home hospital where families of one or more tubercular members are housed and treated just as effectively as if the sick member had been 
sent to a sanitarium in the country, but with the added advantage of not breaking up the family life. An entirely different field in which Mrs. Anderson has taken an active and important part embraces the work to improve the care of the insane and mentally deficient and to forestall the development of mental disorders. Her gifts to the National Committee for Mental Hygiene have enabled that organization to, to create widespread and intelligent interest in the subject and to win a hold on public support that ensures the future permanency and success of its work. During the Great War, she gave in, instinctively to the relief and welfare organizations and purchased and sent through her own organization tons of food continuously and regularly for several years to aid the suffering people of Belgium and France. And since the armistice has made it possible for the Memorial Fund Association, an organization founded by her many years ago, to give $100,000 this year to the sick and destitute children of Siberia, and within the past few months, the same association gave $50,000 to Herbert Hoover for the starving children of Europe. In 1905, she founded the Memorial Fund Association with an initial gift of $3 million. And from time to time, she has added to the foundation by gifts totaling approximately $8 million. The association is managed by a board of directors, among whom are Edward W. Sheldon, who is president of the association, Honorable Elihu Root, Thomas Cochran of the firm of J.P. Morgan & Company, John J. Milburn, George L. Nichols, Albert G. Milbank, and Dr. Charles M. Caldwell. In 1918, the government of France, in recognition of her many and notable gifts to the French people conferred upon Mrs. Anderson the Medal of the Legion of Honor. Among Negro schools of the South, among medical missionaries in China, and throughout countless educational and charitable organizations, Mrs. Anderson's name and vivid personality will long be held in affectionate and grateful memory. While recognizing the value and necessity for organized charity, Mrs. Anderson was always intolerant of red tape and had no patience with organizations with, with which emphasized form above substance. Therefore, it frequently happened that she indulged in what she called unconventional giving, quote-unquote, and on these occasions she reveled in the shocked surprise of the Orthodox Keen in mind, possessed of sound business judgment, with a rare sense of humor, buoyant in spirits, strong in her likes and dislikes, counting loyalty as one of the supreme qualities in human relationship, fearless and ever ready to fight for the right as she saw it, scornful of weakness and insincerity in others, she went through life a valiant soul whose loss will be mourned by a host of people who came directly or indirectly under her influence. In 1895, Mrs. Anderson gave to the town of Greenwich its Greenwich Public Library in memory of her father and mother. Later, she gave $10,000 toward an endowment fund for the library. She owned the large and handsome estate known as Millbank on East Putnam Avenue, where she made her home. She had traveled extensively. She had been for many years an attendant at the Second Congregational Church, where she was one of its largest contributors. 
The grand list of taxable property in the town of Greenwich this year showed Mrs. Anderson to have the second largest assessment in the township. Besides her husband, she is survived by one daughter, Dr. Eleanor M. Campbell, and also one granddaughter. And that, my friends, came from the Greenwich News and Graphic, published on February 25th, 1921, on pages 1 and 7. A reminder that we of Greenwich, Connecticut, are truly blessed to have among our historic luminaries Elizabeth Milbank Anderson. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's will was made public uh, in the Greenwich News and Graphic that was published on Friday, March 11th, 1921. I'd like to share this with you. And it goes as follows. Large bequests to various charities in different parts of the country is the subheadline. By the will of Mrs. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson, who died in a private sanitarium in New York of Milbank, Greenwich in New York, Filed in the Surrogates Court, New York, on Tuesday, more than $2,500,000 is bequeathed to public institutions. Mrs. Anderson inherited $10 million from the estate of her father, the late Jeremiah Milbank, most of which she devoted to charitable and educational purposes during her lifetime. The bequests now are said to represent about half of the present value of her estate. Her father, a banker, was director of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, and with Gail Borden, founded the Borden Company. Her husband, Abram A. Anderson, an artist, received $50,000 under the will. One of the bequests made by Mrs. Anderson was $1,500,000 to the Memorial Fund Association, founded by her with an endowment of $3 million. To this, she added from time to time until her total gifts to this organization amounted to nearly $8 million. The association has made many charitable gifts, some recent ones being $100,000 for the aid of Serbian children and $50,000 to the Hoover Fund for the Suffering Children of Europe. Mrs. Anderson requested in her will that the officers of the association change its name to the Millbank Memorial Fund. To the Children's Aid Society for the development of the convalescent home at Chappaqua, Mrs. Anderson left $100,000. This home was founded by Mrs. Anderson, who gave to it land and buildings. Her total gift to the Children's Aid Society amounted to about $1 million. Other public bequests were Association for the Improvement of the Condition of the Poor, $200,000. The Legal Aid Society, $50,000 for maintenance of its Harlem branch. The National Committee for Mental Hygiene, $100,000. Henry Street Settlement, $50,000. Adirondack Cottage Sanitarium, $25,000. The National Child Labor Committee, $25,000. Fisk University, Nashville, Tennessee, $50,000. Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, $10,000. State Charities Aid Society, $25,000. Society of the Music School Settlement, $10,000. Baptist Home for the Aged, $10,000. Ladies Christian Union, $5,000. 
Oneida Baptist Institute, Oneida, Kentucky, for $5,000, and Society of the New York Hospital, $50,000. Mrs. Anderson left $40,000 to Barnard College, of which she was a trustee and vice chairman of the board. Relatives and friends received bequests aggregating $600,000. Dr. Eleanor Anderson Campbell, a daughter and and, Mrs. and Elizabeth uh, Melbank Anderson are to have the income from trust funds of $250,000 each, in addition to provision made by Mrs. Anderson in her lifetime. Charles M. Caldwell and Albert G. Milbank, cousins of Mrs. Anderson, are the residuary legatees. The Greenwich Library was a gift of Mrs. Anderson to the town of Greenwich, altogether with an endowment fund of $10,000. She also contributed a fund for the erection of the Greenwich Academy building on North Maple Avenue and had been one of the school's main supporters for a number of years. And that, my friends, was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, March 11, 1921. Well, the following story that I have for you comes from the January 30th, 1914 uh, edition of the Greenwich News. Uh, and um, it is quite an interesting story, in my view, because um, it shows a picture um, and elaborates on the mausoleum uh, where the late Mrs. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson um, is interred. Uh, in fact, Putnam Cemetery um, at that time, in the early years of the 20th century, uh, was becoming a, um, a very popular place in terms of where those who um, uh, were the uh, of the great estates of the Gilded Age um, met their uh, finally, final resting place, if you will. Um, and um, as the article that I am going to uh, quote uh, from you, it says um, this, uh, Putnam uh, taking rank with most famous burying grounds in the country, Mrs. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson has erected $300,000 marble mausoleum, and many prominent families have selected large plots. Great improvements have been made by association, magnificent location, with a wide view of sounding country. Now, Putnam Cemetery is located off of a Parsonage Road. It's not far from downtown Greenwich. And if I am correct, I believe that Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's mausoleum um, which is absolutely stunning. It is the largest mausoleum in Putnam Cemetery, and I also believe that it is located at the highest point uh, in terms of elevation in Putnam Cemetery. Now, the article that I have in front of me, um, the scan unfortunately didn't come out very well, but I'm going to try to quote from uh, parts of it and, um, and and share that with you. I think that you will find this interesting. By the way, if my memory is served uh, correct, and I think it is, um, that this um, uh, past year, um, there was a tour of Putnam Cemetery. I believe that um, Greenwich uh, Historical Society board member Davida Strachbein was the one um, who led that. I hope that that is one that she will lead again. And um, and certainly, if, uh, if that is the case, uh, we will certainly let you um, know here. And you can also learn more about that at GreenwichHistory.org, the official website of the Greenwich Historical Society. So let me see if I could read some of this from you from the article. Again, the scan didn't come out very well, but we'll just try to make do. All right. Um, let's see. Putnam Cemetery will assuredly soon take its place among the most famous cemeteries in the country. Already hundreds of the wealthy families 
uh, that have uh, come or purchased um, beautiful, uh, built or uh, I should say purchased beautiful homes um, in Greenwich have purchased plots there. And even a few strangers who have been attracted by its beautiful location have decided to lay their dear departed there and have purchased plots. Among the most beautiful and imposing of the memorials at Putnam Cemetery is the marble mausoleum of Mrs. A. A. Anderson. That would be Elizabeth Milbank Anderson. This mausoleum, and again, this is printed in, um, in, in or published, I should say, in 1914, in January. Um, it was not finished, um, but uh, nevertheless, it was very, very um, important and prominent uh, in the um, development of Putnam Cemetery. As I said, this mausoleum is not yet completed and will be one of the costliest and most beautiful in the country. It is located on a very high ground from which the views of the surrounding country and the waters of Long Island Sound is most magnificent. Uh, the structure was begun nearly two years ago and is to be completed during the summer. Its outer walls of Georgia marble are up and the interior is being finished with a pink Italian marble almost new to this country. The mausoleum covers about 60 by 35 feet of ground area and is about 33 or 40 feet high. Great bronze doors have been made by Tiffany and Company of New York, who also designed and built the beautiful windows. The cost of the windows and doors alone will be about $40,000. That's in uh, <laughs> in dollars of, um, of the year uh, let's see, 1914, so you could uh, imagine what that would be today. Um, and completed will approximate $300,000. Um, uh, and there, there will be one large compartment on the ground floor and two on the floor above. Ample accommodations are afforded for the placing of nearly 100 bodies in the mausoleum. Charles A. Rich of New York is the architect and Andrew J. Robinson of New York, the builder. The development of Putnam Cemetery has been quite remarkable. It was only 24 years ago that the plot of 80 acres on the Parsonage Road and extending almost to North Street was purchased of Hanford Lockwood. The property, one of the most beautiful anywhere in Greenwich, was immediately laid out by engineer S.E. Minor in plots of various sizes. By the way, the firm of S.E. Minor still exists today in the early years of the 21st century. Back to the story. It's favorable location, its accessibility, and its quiet, peaceful surroundings and splendid view appealed to Greenwich people from the first, and many plots have been sold to families of prominence in the town. Each year has seen greater improvement in the cemetery. The roads, drives, and walks have been well built, and the whole cemetery receives the best of care. The Cemetery Association is now preparing plans for a handsome marble chapel, from which funeral services may be held, and a larger receiving vault, and these will be constructed soon. The roads are to be rebuilt and made permanent. A certain percentage of the sale of every lot is set aside as a perpetual fund for the care of the cemetery. The cemetery may be approached by several highways, although North Street and Parsonage Road are the thoroughfares usually taken. The cemetery is situated about two miles from the village and on a slope above it with a deep valley land between its location has always been declared ideal. Now, the rest of the article um, lists uh, a number of prominent uh, plot holders uh, who are residing in Greenwich who would purchase plots here. 
And uh, originally I wasn't going to read this to you, but you know what? I, I just think I'll do it. <laughs> Why not? Uh, why keep you in suspense, right? All right, so some of the um, uh, the plot holders that are here um, include Mrs. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson, Commodore Elias C. Benedict, W.C. Squire, Mrs. J.F. Ackerman, Mr. Leslie C. Bruce, George Rowland, Henry Dayton, the family of George Dayton, Mrs. Hanford Lockwood, Cornell Woolley, Mrs. W.H. McCord, Mrs. I.P. Jones, Mrs. Howell, Augustus I. Mead, Judge R.J. Walsh, George Slauson, the family of Colonel Henry H. Adams, the family of Alfred A. Rundle, Mrs. L.H. Stevens, W.J. Johnson, Mrs. Emil Boaz, the Louder family, Mrs. H.P. Whittaker, J.H. McCrutchen, T.E. Blake, the family of John Dayton, I. Frank Stone, Albert Luke family, E. W. McLeod, the family of C. P. Armstrong, W. A. Park, and many others. And that, my friends, uh, was published um, in the January 30th, 1914 edition of the Greenwich News. Uh, it does feature a picture. Um, the scan is a very rough one, but it is a picture of uh, the uh, the Millbank Mausoleum. Truly, if you go into um, Putnam Cemetery uh, to uh, to visit, you just follow the uh, the road when you go in, and believe me, you will find this mausoleum very very hard to miss. <laughs> You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, this coming Friday marks St. Patrick's Day, and of course we have many people in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, who are of Irish descent. And I have right in front of me here an article that was just published by Leslie Yeager of GreenwichFreePress.com about the coming parade. And that will be on Sunday. That's March 19th, 2023. Um, And um, it is sponsored by the Greenwich Hibernian Society. uh, And it will be the organization's 47th annual parade. According to the story, the parade will be led by Grand Marshal Kevin McFadden. The parade will start at town hall at 2 o'clock p.m. when Greenwich Police Sergeant Ryan Carino blows the ceremonial starting whistle. And then Ryan's Irish ancestors came from County Cork. This year's parades promises to be one of the largest in recent memory. There will be seven bagpipe bands, including the 11 total bands. That would be the Greenwich Pipe Band, Fairfield County Police Pipes and Drums, Westchester Firefighters Pipes and Drums, Essex County Emerald Society Pipe Band, the Pyramid Shriners Pipes and Drums, Pelham Regional Pipe Band, the Celtic Cross Pipes and Drums, Porchester High School Marching Band, Tappan Bridgemen, the Nash Drum Corps and the Holy 
Brass band. Wow, that's a lot. Um, that is going to be quite large. Um, in addition, there will be at least 50 groups of local schools, scouts, fire and police departments, and civic organizations marching. There will be the Irish step dancers from three local schools. That would be Lynn Academy of Irish Dance, Anamkara Irish Dance, and Harney Pender Katie. Academy of Irish Dance, a number of antique and vintage vehicles will be in the parade, including an antique van sponsored by Sandbridge Nursery. The always popular Pyramid Shriners Motor Patrol will patrol in their miniature cars. It sounds, as Leslie says, it sounds like the weather will cooperate. We sure hope it does. And the Greenwich Hibernian Association is very excited to once again share and celebrate its Irish heritage by sponsoring Greenwich's St. Patrick's Day Parade. Now, you can learn more about the parade and uh, get updates by going to... GreenwichHibernians.org, that is spelled G-R-E-E-M-W-I-C-H-H-I-B-E-R-N-I-A-N-S dot org. One of the most historic events that took place during the American Revolutionary War conflict uh, was the ride by General Israel Putnam from what we know today as Putnam Cottage, um, as he very abruptly departed <laughs> to escape um, coming into the clutches of, um, of the British Redcoats. It is something that those of us who were born and raised here, uh, and longtime residents as well, who are um, aficionados of the American revolutionary history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, have uh, come to know quite well. By accident, I happened to come across a, a poem uh, that was written by an anonymous soul, um, here in Greenwich, it was published in the Greenwich Observer, which was Greenwich, Connecticut's first uh, published newspaper. Um, and it was published in the edition uh, of the Greenwich Observer on March 6th, 1879. I have it in front of me right here. And if you will bear with me, I, will, I would like to read this uh, poem to you. Again, it says uh, Putnam's Ride, written for the Observer. However, it does not give the, um, the author's name. We will never know who that is, but uh, we still have a poem, and it goes as follows. General the foe, at once to flee, upswings that patriot bold. A prisoner do they make of me, and shall it ever be told? Away, good steed, away, away, let us but gain you steep. All helpless on its brow shall they stand while our course we keep. The race is short, the baffled foe, blank on the rampart stand. To see careering far below, him they had deemed at hand. <laughs> if not alive, then dead, since none this bleating crag will dare. Fire soldiers, let your balls as out. Sock the arch-rebel there. Too late he had a single aim, that truest proved of all. But proved a little truer fame had chronicled his fall. But what wrecks he of danger, though? The balls come thick and fast. Say what wrecks he of danger now, but he but win at last. An instant's pausing in mid-flight, a mocking shout, come on! A riddling cap swung full in sight, turn Britons 
Putnam's gone. Well, for as long as I can remember, there have been at least maybe a few people that have wanted to have the town of Greenwich, Connecticut depart uh, from its uh, current status as a town and, um, and be turned into a city. Believe it or not, this has been happening for a very, very long time. In fact, uh, literally 100 years ago, uh, <laughs> well, actually, I'm sorry, not 100 years ago, uh, but um, it was on March 14, 1924. This is, of course, the year 2023, um, uh, in which uh, there was an editorial that appeared in the Greenwich News and uh, Graphic. Um, and its headline is No City of Greenwich. Uh, so <laughs> let me share this with you. Some of the um, old timers here in, in town will probably understand the significance of this. Uh, it's a, a battle cry, if you will, that has been heard many times. So it goes as follows. The Hartford Times, which sagaciously keeps an eye on matters and things transpiring in this corner of the state, observes, and we quote, Judge James F. Walsh of Greenwich, who, to a certain extent, is the mentor of that attractive town in its local affairs, made a statement this week in which he said he was opposed to the incorporation within the town of a city and that he preferred to have the present local government of town and borough continued. Greenwich, with its population of nearly $25,000, is large enough to assume the dignity of cityhood, but it is evident that there are some people residing in it who are not attracted to the dignity of municipal designations and who prefer the simpler and less complex form of town government with a borough system to meet the neighborhood requirements of more or less congested population, unquote. The Times cites the experience of Hartford, which became a city 140 years ago when its population was only 6,000. From the time it assumed city dignity, the population of the town decreased to 4,000 in a decade. In spite of its subsequent growth, however, there has always been a feeling of regret that the consolidation of the town and city 30 years ago abolished the old town meetings where public affairs were annually discussed by the leading men of the community, whose sound judgment, advice, and counsel were esteemed a valuable asset. Inferentially, the Hartford scribe credits James Judge Walsh with good sense in opposing a city incorporation. One attractive feature of the town meeting brand of government is the town meeting itself. In the very mid-season of counter-attractions, when the community is surveyed with social and other functions, a live, exciting town meeting called to quote-unquote take action on any public matter that promises a fight will fill the town's building to overflowing as much to hear and cheer the eagle flights of oratory as to witness the self-possession and calm and commanding demeanor of Judge Jim himself as Speaker of the House as he brandishes his moderator ga moderator's gavel with the dexterity of a drum major and maintains parliamentary order with the hypnotic gleam of his magnetic eye. The abolishment of the town form of government would relegate those delightful sessions to oblivion and leave to the oldest inhabitants during the next generation the cold comfort of looking backward with the pathetic reflection that, quote, them was the happy days, unquote. 
Sports More Than Just a Game has opened at the Greenwich Historical Society as of March 8th, 2023. Uh, you can learn more about it and get more details at GreenwichHistory.org. Now, sports play an essential role in American life, with many of our closest bonds and memories rooted in a shared appreciation of athletes and teams, the rivalries, star athletes, trophies, and accolades that characterize modern American sports reflect the many facets of American life. Sporting history is a social history, and the development of sports and athletic culture in Greenwich and its surrounding communities reflects the broader history of the region. Sports More Than Just a Game is an exhibition featuring exclusive memorabilia, equipment, and personal effects from celebrated sports figures and everyday athletes who broke barriers, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletics. Reflecting the vibrant history of local sporting clubs and leagues and the notable legacy of prominent athletes making their homes in Greenwich, the exhibition and its related adult and family programs tell a rich story of sporting culture viewed through an historical lens. I have seen this exhibit. I do recommend it. I think that you will enjoy it. Um, and I wanted to draw your attention to a couple of events that are coming up over at uh, the Greenwich Historical Society related to this exhibit. One of them is a lecture with Neil J. Paulus on the indigenous roots of lacrosse. I had no idea that uh, that there were indigenous Native American roots to the game of, uh, of lacrosse. That is going to be this coming Thursday. That's March 16, and that is from 6 to 7.30 p.m., and that will be at the, um, at the Bush Holly House campus. Neil J. Paulus of the Onondaga Nation will share an in-depth history of the indigenous roots of lacrosse, its significance today, and the connection between the sport and spiritual healing. Now, also coming up on the calendar that would be for Sunday, March 19th, um, is Afternoon in the Archives Sports Stories. Uh, a closer look at documents, ephemera, and objects at the Greenwich Historical Society collection that highlight the complexity of the social history of sports in the town of Greenwich. The first of those afternoon in the archives um, sports stories sessions is going to be this coming Sunday, March 19, um, uh, 2023. And you can learn more about that, including any registration requirements at GreenwichHistory.org. Well, in the March 14, 1924 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, Lucian Edwards penned an article under the uh, headline or, or the column Greenwich Life as it is and was. A very interesting article that I wanted to share with you about the opening of streets, especially in the downtown area of uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, it's not very long, but um, I, I found it particularly interesting. Many of you may know uh, that one of my... Uh, activities uh, on my daily agenda, if you will, is to go hiking. Um, it's for good exercise and uh, for maintaining health. Um, and what I do, believe it or not, is that at least five to six days a week, I hike a minimum of six miles. And one of my favorite places to do that, of course, is the, um, is the downtown Greenwich area. There's certainly lots to see um, and lots of history to uh, uh, to, uh, to behold, <laughs> even in the early 21st century. So let me just share this with you from Lucian Edwards. The title of this is Opening of Streets. 
And it goes as follows. A prominent well-to-do and old resident, one who can be called an old-timer, who knows all about Greenwich and its evolution from a small country place to a lively suburban residential town of Tibet today, again, this is 1924, who has been reading the articles on real estate development in the news and graphic with interest, called the writer by telephone and asked, quote, Who opened Lewis Street and the lower part of Mason Street? Reply was made that the question could not be answered. Quote, I will tell you, he continued, Shadrach M. Brush opened the lower part of Mason Street, the section between Lewis Street and East Elm Street, purchased the land of the Mason family and Brush Knapp and developed the block between those streets and Greenwich Avenue, with the exception of the lot at the, on the corner of Lewis Street and Greenwich Avenue, which the Mason family reserved afterward, selling it to John H. Ray for $6,000. These streets were opened in 1870, and Mr. Brush sold the lots. Isaac Weed, a builder, put up several houses, one of which was sold to the Knights of Columbus recently, where this popular and prosperous society have developed their fine headquarters. Other houses were soon built on this section. Mr. Brush was one of the most progressive, energetic, and successful Greenwich businessmen of his day. He was the pioneer of the development of real estate, and his transactions were so numerous that the lawyers disliked to search titles of real estate which Shadrach M. Brush had owned more than any other title because he had owned so many different tracts of real estate. On what is now Park Avenue, then named Tracy Street, Mr. Brush purchased 25 acres of land, opened Tracy Street from North Street, selling one of the lots to Warren Harford. Havard, who built the house now owned by Mrs. Edward Holly, and several more houses were soon afterward built on this desirably located real estate for residential purposes, although at the time considered a long distance away from the business section of the borough. Over in what was then called the Love Lane section, now known as Davis Avenue, and on Millbank Avenue, Mr. Brush purchased unimproved land, selling the lots for residences, small houses being mostly built in the locality, and Mr. Brush operated, for a time, a stone quarry located on Millbank Avenue. Mr. Brush's real estate activities extended over a period of several years and totaled real estate operations amounting to several hundred thousand dollars. When he became somewhat advanced in years, he retired to the Brush Farm in Stanwich, which had been in possession of the family for more than a century, and is still owned by the family, where he spent his declining years. His son, S. Augustus Brush, however, may be said to continue his father's lead in real estate operations. He bought the frame business building on Greenwich Avenue, nearly opposite the old town hall, on the second story of which was located the first lodge rooms of Acacia Lodge, F and M-A-M, and A-M, and the frame building north. He built several attractive cottages on the south side of Lewis Street that were greatly needed for homes, which were quickly rented to desirable tenants. Mr. Brush also purchased the Knapp and Lockwood houses on Mason Street, and for a number of years was prominent in the development and the buying and selling of real estate in the vicinity of the borough, most of which he has disposed of in recent years. Like his father, S. Augustus Brush, 
may be said to have had a lot to do with the growth, development, and prosperity of the borough of Greenwich. And by the way, if I could cut in, that would be the basically the downtown area as we know it today. The opening of, of streets through the farmlands in the vicinity of the borough of Greenwich really was the beginning of the rapid growth in population in the number of new houses built. The Smith Mead Farm, some 20 acres of which were purchased by the Meeting House School District for the Havemeyer School building, was centrally located. Mason Street was extended through the land to Railroad Avenue, and it was not long before a number of houses were in process of construction on the Mason's Tract extension, and Millbank Avenue was extended south for a considerable distance. Some of the finest homes in the borough were built on Millbank Avenue, Havemeyer Place, Ridge Street, Lewis Street, and other streets were opened up through the Smithmead farmland. And now these streets have been built up with attractive homes and have become thickly settled parts of the borough and have added greatly to the accessible wealth of the town and borough of Greenwich. Another section which was developed soon after the quote-unquote opening up of the Smithmead unimproved land was that in the vicinity of Davis Avenue, and new streets were put through, the most important of which was Connecticut Avenue. In the vicinity, there were soon a number of attractive cottages, and the neighborhood was built up very rapidly, and building lots increased in value in all parts of the borough. At this time, a large number of houses were quote-unquote going up and building was quote-unquote rushing. The town was filled with mechanics engaged in the building trades and everybody was making money. The storekeepers' trade was increasing and new kinds of businesses were being started in the borough, though at this time the era of building of business buildings had not begun. There was no town in the state where there was so much building compared to the population as there was in Greenwich. Carpenters, painters, masons, and mechanics in other lines of the building trades were in demand. The prosperity of Greenwich became known outside the town, and these mechanics came to the town by scores every, every weekday and Sundays too. Higher wages here was the rule than in any other town in the state, and there were so many men coming to Greenwich to work that it was difficult for many of these workers to find a place to board, and some of the men were compelled to go to Stamford and Portchester to secure boarding places. And these towns profited by the prosperity of Greenwich at the time, many thousands of dollars earned in Greenwich being spent in the stores located in these towns. Well, I have another heiress and philanthropist to call to your attention in our continuing celebration of Women's History Month, and that would be someone quite colorful. Um, and uh, I am referring to Sylvia Ann Howland Green Wilkes. Uh, and uh, and uh, she lived in a place that uh, those of you who go to Coffee for Good at 48 Maple Avenue will find very familiar because she actually lived in that house, um, which is the Solemn Mead House uh, behind the Second Congregational Church. Uh, this is an essay that uh, appears at GreenwichHistory.org in the History from Home section. Uh, you can find that under the Library and Archives in the um, in the menu at the uh, top of the page. Uh, this is by Leslie Albamonte, and um, the title of it is Spotlight on Sylvia Wilkes, Greenwich Heiress, Recluse, and Philanthropist. And there is a picture here 
uh, quite colorful. Um, Anyway, on with the essay. Sylvia Ann Howland Green Wilkes, who lived from 1871 to 1951, was the daughter of tycoon Hetty Green, also known as the Witch of Wall Street. Could you imagine having that as your reputation? The richest woman in America during the Gilded Age. In 1909, Sylvia was married to Matthew Astor Wilkes, who lived from 1844 to 1926. He was the great-grandson of America's first millionaire, John Jacob Astor. She was 32, and he was 63. Hmm. When her brother died in 1935, she inherited his estate, which made her the sole heir to her mother's $100 million fortune. How about that? After her husband died and with no children, Sylvia Wilkes lived a quiet and solitary life, traveling back and forth between her New York City apartment and her home in Greenwich. Like her mother, Sylvia was known to be very eccentric and a recluse, and is noted for always wearing black. Wilkes purchased multiple properties in Greenwich, but preferred her home at 48 Maple Avenue. Again, that's the Solomon Mead House where Coffee for Good is found today, among uh, other nonprofits in the um, in the building. Early 20th century Greenwich real estate firm owner Thomas N. Cook handled the business of for Wilkes local properties and residences from 1934 to 1948. The Greenwich Historical Society has recently processed about 50 cubic feet of Cook's donated files, some of which document correspondence and business between Cook and Wilkes. Cook served in a somewhat secretarial role for Wilkes, receiving and paying statements, documenting visitors to her residence, and delivering charitable donations on her behalf. Uh, There's some images here you can look at on the page. Wilkes died in 1951 with an estate worth about $95 million, approximately $990 million in 2021 dollars. Her will, found in a cabinet drawer under three bars of soap, provided just $5,000 to a cousin and the remaining millions to 63 charities, including colleges, libraries, hospitals, and churches. On March 22, 1952, nearly one year after Wilkes' death, the contents of her property on Maple Avenue were auctioned off, and over 400 curious people arriving to get a peek into her house. The New York Times described her residence as comfort found lacking, quote-unquote, with no real items of value. Oh, dear. In 1952, the Second Congregational Church purchased the property at 48 Maple Avenue for $51,200 and renamed the house the Mead Parish House. Today, it's known as just Mead House, after the original builder and a member of one of the Greenwich founding families, Solomon Mead. The church had approached Mr. Cook and Mrs. Wilkes in 1944 about purchasing the property, but Wilkes was not yet ready to entertain that possibility as she was fond of the convenient location and had spent a considerable amount of time and money in putting the house in shape, quote-unquote. Okay, Um, let's see. Oh, today the former home holds offices for the church, provides space for meetings and activities, and and it says here soon we'll be welcoming the new Greenwich nonprofit coffee shop, Coffee for Good. Um, This was uh, written a couple of years ago, so Coffee for Good is quite well established uh, there. And, um, uh, and, And so you can actually go to a place where this rather eccentric and extraordinary heiress and recluse and philanthropist lived. You could actually walk the halls 
um, the same way uh, that uh, Sylvia Wilkes did back in the day. So the next time you have an inkling for uh, something to do of this sort, please go to 48 Maple Avenue, go to Coffee for Good, order something good. You might even see me there and um, enjoy the experience. Well, as we start to close out today's show, we are going to end with crimes and misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to observe the continuing celebrations of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, And uh, so this is for our officers and their families and all of us, actually, who value law and order, even, yes, in the early years of the 21st century. Today's crime (laughs) comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, literally from uh, just 100 years ago on February 23rd, 1923. This was was published, and um, it is Radic arrested. Soldier of Battery F had neglected his duties. Oh, dear. And the story goes as follows. William Raddick of 51 Sand Street, Portchester, a member of Battery F, 192nd Artillery, was arrested at his home Wednesday night for failing to attend camp with his outfit last July and neglecting to attend drills. Hmm. A squad from Battery F, accompanied by policeman Robert L. Hain, and that's spelled H-E-N-N-E, of Portchester, went to his home and brought Raddick to Greenwich, where he was placed in the town lockup. He willingly returned here with the officer without extradition papers. He was charged with delinquency. His arrest was ordered by Colonel M.B. Payne, National Guard Commander of New London, and notified James L. Hoyt of the local battery to cause his arrest. Raddick was released later in the day after he had paid a fine of $75 for his failure to go to Camp Eustace with the battery last July, $17 for neglecting to attend drills, he having missed 17 Oh dear. When Raddick and the squad reached Greenwich and they were met by Constable William E. Rich, who possessed the warrant for his arrest here. Had Raddick been unable to pay the fine, he would have had to work them out at the rate of a dollar a day, paying three dollars a week for his upkeep and transportation costs. And that, my friends, was in the Greenwich News and Graphic, February 23rd, 1923. <music> Well, my friends, thank you for tuning in to the Tuesday, 14th of March, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. The Greenwich at Town for All Seasons Show podcast was made possible today by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, I like to receive emails, so if you'd like to contact me, please do so at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich at Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday. That would be the 21st of 
March 2023. I'm very, very grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I look forward to being with you next week. Take good care now. Bye-bye.